2: In 1952, in the middle of the Korean War, the United Steelworkers of America threatened to strike. But before they could, President Truman shocked the nation with a televised address announcing he was seizing control of the steel plants so as not to interrupt the war effort. Within half an hour of that address... Lawyers for the steel companies had driven to a district court judge's home in Washington, D.C., and gotten the judge to set a hearing for the next morning, a hearing as to whether or not a president could actually do that. Now, the merits of that case are really interesting, but the reason the steel seizure case matters today is the speed at which it was heard by the Supreme Court. The issue was so urgent— For the steel workers, the unions, the steel companies, the US military. It was so pressing that the case skipped the appeals process and the Supreme Court heard oral arguments just a little over a month after Truman's announcement. They decided the case less than a month after that, which is like light speed in Supreme Court time. And that is why, in special counsel Jack Smith's filing before the Supreme Court today, Mr. Smith cited the 1952 steel seizure case. Trump's lawyers have argued that the entire federal election interference case should be thrown out because Trump, as president, was protected by presidential immunity. In his filing today, Jack Smith argued that resolution of this issue is so important that it requires an immediate and definitive decision by the nation's highest court. And the 1952 steel seizure case... Shows that the Supreme Court can act fast when it comes to matters of national importance. But Special Counsel Smith also offered the Supreme Court an even more direct precedent.
3: This is NBC Nightly News, Friday, May 24th, reported by John Chancellor. Good evening. Late this afternoon, there was a stunning and completely unexpected development in the battle Special Watergate Prosecutor Leon Jaworski is waging to get presidential tapes. He went directly to the Supreme Court and asked it to intervene on his behalf. Jaworski went directly to the Supreme Court in an attempt to avoid a time-consuming test in the Court of Appeals. Jaworski said the issues raised by the president's defiance of the subpoena must be resolved before the Supreme Court goes on vacation next month.
2: Now, in their own filing before the Supreme Court yesterday, Trump's lawyers made clear that Mr. Trump does not want the court to act too quickly. Trump urged the justices not to rush to judgment. In an obvious bid to try and delay this issue from being resolved and therefore potentially delay Trump's trial past the 2024 election, Trump's lawyers claim that for the Supreme Court to decide this issue correctly it should wait for the case to go through the entire appeals process. When the Watergate special prosecutor was trying to subpoena Nixon's White House audio tapes, Nixon's lawyers took the exact same approach.
3: The president's answer went to the court today. He does not want the court to act quickly. The brief said that the president opposes any attempt to shortcut the legal process It said the doctrine that the president can withhold evidence under executive privilege remains alive and well. It said it was more important that the case be decided wisely than hurriedly. And it said that none of the parties would be served by a rush to judgment. The White House denies that it is pursuing a strategy of delay.
2: A president pursuing a strategy of delay. Sometimes history rhymes and sometimes history just repeats itself tune and verse. And here is how that Nixon precedent resolved the very next day.
3: The U.S. Supreme Court acting as swiftly as it ever has. Today announced it will review the special Watergate prosecutor's complaint against President Nixon.
2: Within two months of agreeing to hear that case, the Supreme Court issued its historic, unanimous 8-0 decision that President Nixon must turn over the White House tapes. The Supreme Court can act quickly when it wants to. And today in his filing, Jack Smith made that case. Just as the court granted Sertori before, before judgment in the United States versus Nixon and expedited its proceedings, it should do the same here. Here, the stakes are at least as high, if not higher. The resolution of the question presented is pivotal to whether the former president himself will stand trial which is scheduled to begin less than three months in the future. The charges here are of the utmost gravity. The case involves, for the first time in our nation's history, criminal charges against a former president based on his actions while in office. And not just any actions, alleged acts to perpetuate himself in power by frustrating the constitutionally prescribed process for certifying the lawful winner of an election. The nation has a compelling interest in a decision on respondents' claim of immunity from these charges, and if they are to be tried, a resolution by conviction or acquittal without undue delay. Joining me now are Mary McCord, former acting assistant attorney general for national security in the Obama DOJ and current co-host of the Prosecuting Donald Trump podcast. Also with me is Katie Benner, New York Times reporter on the national desk. Katie, I was very struck by the language in Jack Smith's filing today, the way in which he presents the the, the gravity of this case. And I wonder what you make of that or the urgency of that argument, um, you know, in light of all the back and forth sure. over this.
4: You know, there are so many filings back and forth. You're right. But when you step back, in essence, what he's saying is we have to decide whether or not the American people get to see and hear the full hearing of the evidence, both that the prosecutors have and the defense has. They get to hear the arguments and a jury gets to decide and we should know the answer before an election, before we decide who should be president of the United States. Now, again, the Trump team has tried to cast this as a political move. But what if they have great evidence? Yeah. What if they can exonerate him? Exactly. Shouldn't they be able to do that in a court of law through our system of due process before an election so he could be on the ballot without the, sh- the shadow of a potential prosecution over him? What Jack Smith is saying is whether or not he wins, a decision should be made. A jury should be able to allow to weigh in on this before voters make probably the most important decision they're going to make. yeah. Which is who becomes president? Exactly,
2: and it's almost been like in that way. Trump has really dominated the argument by suggesting exp- expeditious processing is somehow partisan. But of course, it's about the American voters having all the information at hand. Exactly. Mary, I, I, I wonder. Um, you know, we played the tape of of Nixon and Jaworski. The the parallels are eerie. Even the same language. Do not rush to judgment in this case. That was a Nixon filing. Trump's filing. Partisan rush to judgment. I mean, it's it's not a coincidence. And I wonder how much you think the specter of of that case looms as the you know, as the justices take potentially take on this one, um, given the stakes at hand.
1: Well, I think what's significant about the Nixon case as well as the steel seizure case is it, is there good examples of when a case is significant enough and important enough, it is reason for the Supreme Court to do two things. One, to leapfrog thro- the Court of Appeals and take a case directly from a district court decision. And secondly, to take a case on an expedited schedule. And in this case, I think what Jack Smith is saying is that even though in the ordinary course cases come up to the Supreme Court after an issue, a legal issue, has been percolating in the courts of appeals for some time, sometimes years, with different circuits per- potentially ruling in different ways, learning from each other, and eventually the Supreme Court will resolve an issue. But here, what Jack Smith is saying, you know, this is not the kind of issue that's going to percolate out in the other in the other circuit courts for years. This has importance now. This is an unprecedented situation. I mean, the Nixon case is good precedent for timing. But, of course, that was not about the trial of a, of a former president. That was about a, a different trial where evidence uh, that that uh, president Nixon did not want to be supplied for that trial. That's what he was trying to guard against. Here we're talking about an actual former president being charged with and tried for crimes allegedly committed while he was president. And what Jack Smith is saying is, you know, there's no need. Whatever we do stopping in the in the Circuit Court of Appeals for a ruling, this court, the Supreme Court, is still going to need to answer that question. And so let's just get there now and do it quickly, even if it means that the Supreme Court were to say, former President Trump, you're immune immune from prosecution. Jack Smith is saying we need a resolution. Yeah, I was struck by another piece of the filing, Katie, which is noted by the
2: special counsel that even if the government were to win in the appellate in the D.C. Circuit Court, the default rules give Trump 45 days to seek a rehearing on bank, which is the full panel of just judges and 90 days to seek cert. That's I mean, do the math. 90 days is three months. Uh, The trial is supposed to start in three months. Absolutely. That has to create a real climate of concern inside the DOJ. Just the, the rules themselves push for a delay.
4: Of course, it creates concern inside of the Justice Department. But of course, as you can imagine, the Trump legal team has also seen those very same rules and counted those very same days. So you really are seeing Trump trying to run out the clock problematically. He has all but said this is what he's trying yeah. to do. So it's not a secret. I mean, it's why we can, we're not trying to get into his head um, by right. by saying that. I mean, it's, it's truly the strategy that he's espoused. So, of course, that is a concern for the department because the last thing anybody wants is we're already looking at so much unprecedented activity. The last thing anybody wants is a situation where there's a trial that's happening as voters are voting with a verdict that happens in that period of time between the voters electing somebody and that person taking office in january that i mean if you think we're having some really dicey supreme court conversations now i think it will just would wait till
2: later well and i would argue even a trial or a conviction that happens after the nominating process right Absolutely. because then it becomes a deep state plot to derail the nominee of exactly. one of our two major political parties and that's the, that's the in the public interest argument right let us let us have a slate of candidates
4: that everybody can feel should be the slate of candidates before we start.
2: Mary, do you have spidey sense about what the Supreme Court may do? I mean, they have two potentially very hot potatoes in their lap. One is the 14th Amendment call uh, made by the Colorado State Supreme Court. The other is the presidential immunity defense here. Do you think that one might help the just- justices rule on the other, which is to say, you know, Roberts is very concerned about the the legacy and and and. The impression of this court, in terms of the public, uh, how the pu- how the court sees us, um, high- how the public sees the high court as independent or not, and might they take up both cases and rule differently for Trump on each to show that they are neutral arbiters?
1: So I do think they will take up both cases because both are really extremely important, right? One about uh, actually getting to trial on criminal charges against a former president, the other about keeping a former president off of the ballot uh, due to his disability if he's found to have ga- engaged in insurrection, which is what the Colorado Supreme Court found. It's There's no question that if the U.S. Supreme Court were to affirm the Colorado Supreme Court, take that case and say, you're correct colorado supreme court donald trump is not qualified to be president bec- under the 14th amendment section 3 so therefore he cannot be on the ballot then that would sort that would um Obviate some of the rush, the need to get this criminal trial done before election, because he would be off the ballot. Um, I don't, I don't see it playing out timing-wise, though, that way. And I also think that it's um, a, a, a tall hill to climb to for the plaintiffs to win in the Supreme Court in the Colorado case. Not, it's not impossible, of course, but there are, you know, eight different legal conclusions that the Supreme Court would have to agree with uh, that Colorado Supreme Court made. So. I do think the court will take both of these. I I, I don't think the justice will, will think, okay, let's give Trump a win in one and give him a loss in the other in order to retain their integrity. But I think they will look at each case on their merits. The arguments are very, very different in each one. And I do think that, you know, at least the the that most of the judges will be trying really to rule based on the facts and the law and what they think is right under the Constitution, because both of these matters raise significant constitutional issues. But there's no question they're human beings. They have in mind uh, their institutional integrity and the impact of their rulings in both cases on this election in 2024. Yeah, they are human beings, which is, I think, the, the kindest
2: thing you could say about some of the conservatives on that court right now. But that's just me. Um, one last one, Katie. In the Mar-a-Lago case, Jack Smith this week asked for a February 2nd deadline for parties to submit a jury questionnaire, sort of sure. an initial round of vetting. Surprising exactly no one, Trump's team has said, absolutely not. This is a politically motivated election interference mission by the special counsel's office. Smith today responded that Trump's filing was long on rhetoric and baseless accusations that do not merit a response Also, can we get started with jury selection?
4: Right. And so I mean, what he's trying to say is when you're looking at a case with this much publicity around it, that is this controversial we've seen in the past. He used the Boston bombing case as an example, and he used Enron in his example, both strong examples, saying these were communities so deeply impacted by the Boston bombing, of course, the marathon bombing, or by a company, Enron, that employed so many people and then hurt so many people's lives, that in those instances you had... Jury selection include a long questionnaire to winnow the pool down from more than a thousand people to a few hundred to really try to be as impartial as possible and get the best jury. And it's not unusual to do this. He also points out that even though Trump is saying this is partisan, this isn't a way to interfere with you know the election, he notes that the questions, the kinds of questions the jurors will be asked have really nothing to do with that. It's what kind of media do you consume? Yeah. How much of it do you consume? Do you personally think that you can be impartial here? Do you know anybody who is impacted by these acts? That has really nothing to do with many of the political arguments that Trump made. So he's just saying, we want to be ready by May 20th, just in case we go to trial then. This will help us make sure that happens. That's all
2: we need. And so, yes, you're right. Just reminding us. There was a lot of rhetoric, but it was a pretty straightforward request. Yeah, And and reminding us in both cases that the Justice Department and justice itself is not supposed to be partisan. And that is exactly what the jury selection process is about and the Supreme Court hearing. Mary McCord, Katie Benner, thank you both so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. We have a lot more ahead this evening. Rudy Giuliani is running from a court's order to pay massive damages to two former election workers he defamed. But can he hide And next, the political fallout from the Colorado High Court's decision to order Donald Trump off the state's ballot. Obama Deputy National Security Advisor Ben Rhodes joins me on that question right after the break.
5: Just go to NetSuite.com slash podcast 25 for more information. That's NetSuite.com slash podcast 25.
2: Today we learned that Donald Trump plans to formally file an appeal with the Supreme Court after Christmas in response to the Colorado Supreme Court's ruling that removes him from the state's primary ballot. That is according to an NBC News source with knowledge of the Trump team's plan. Colorado's highest court made an exhaustive and compelling argument that Trump was disqualified because he violated the so-called insurrection clause under the Constitution's 14th Amendment. But the landmark ruling has left a lot of debate in its wake. This is Eric Levitz writing in New York Magazine. Precisely because it is extremely important to keep authoritarian insurrectionists out of power, I think the legal merits of the Colorado case matter less than its political consequences. If the Colorado Supreme Court's decision will, in practice, fortify American democracy against the threat of backsliding, then it is good. If it actually increases that threat, then it is bad. Levitz's piece basically raises this question. If the end goal is to keep an insurrectionist from the Oval Office, is it a good idea to disqualify an insurrectionist candidate via the courts if that process may ultimately help get the insurrectionist back into the Oval Office? Joining me now to untangle this knot is Ben Rhodes, former Deputy National Security Advisor for President Obama and co-host of the wildly popular podcast Pod Save the World. Ben, thank you for being here. I thought, these are very difficult, unanswerable questions. Who better to ask than Ben Rhodes? Let's first talk about kind of politically the upside to this 14th Amendment ruling from the state Supreme Court in Colorado. It seems like it catapults Trump and January 6th back into the headlines. And I was really struck by this quote from a different New York magazine piece from Jim Messina, who said the average swing voter thinks about politics four minutes a week and they're not waking up for 12, uh, 12 months. One fifth of Americans are not only one fifth of Americans are convinced that Trump will even be nominated. Will this kind of maybe will help shape people's views about who should be nominated and who should not. I don't know. What do you think?
6: Look, I think it's pretty clear Trump's going to be nominated, right? Uh, It doesn't take a political genius to look at the polls and see that. I think what this tells us and reminds us is that this is going to be an incredibly abnormal election (laughs) and that there's going to be a lot of twists and turns. There's going to be a lot of court activity. A lot of things that remind us of how extreme and authoritarian Donald Trump is Uh, And and it's not going to be a normal campaign where the two people go out and campaign and make their case and then have debates and then we vote. Um, We are going to be confronted with basically a referendum on whether Americans are okay with Donald Trump returning to the Oval Office despite being an insurrectionist authoritarian. Yeah. Um, And Donald Trump's going to try to make it a referendum on Joe Biden and his age. But there's going to be no escaping this question. It's going to be put more and more acutely in front of the American people between now and Election Day.
2: But do you worry that having, for example, the courts, whether the Supreme Court or a state Supreme Court decide to take a candidate off the ballot to Americans who don't read any of the rulings, who aren't as familiarized with the events of January 6th as perhaps you and I are, that that in and of itself smacks of authoritarianism? Do you, do you see that at all? Or do you think that that's a meritless argument?
6: I think that our system has already been worn down and eroded Donald Trump should not be allowed to run for president again based on the other branches of government actually asserting themselves, right? He should have been impeached after January 6th. I mean, there's never been a clear case for impeachment in the history of this country. Mm -hmm. If he'd been impeached, he wouldn't be allowed to run again. The courts, absolutely. If you just look at the letter of the law, uh, how is an insurrectionist allowed to get away with the Insurrection Act, right? But the reality is, We all know the Supreme Court is not going to allow him to be removed from the ballot. We all know that Congress did not assert itself. This question is going to be put to the American people. I I think
2: inevitably. Inevitably. And by the way,
6: uh, that—that's like obviously it's you know the democratic thing. But we're only where we are with Trump because the other branches of government and the guardrails have failed.
2: Yeah, I mean, on its on its merits alone. If you're a textualist sitting on the exactly. Supreme Court, it's not even a question. Yeah, it's yeah. all there in the ruling. And yet, Ben, Trump today on social media saying, I'm not an insurrectionist. Crooked Joe Biden is. Crooked Joe Biden is a threat To democracy. This is what worries me about the sort of strange upside down in which Trump exists. Is the, I mean, it's, it's one thing when it's a witch hunt, right? And he says, the witch hunt is against me. Joe Biden is the person that's using the deep state. No, no, you're the puppet. Yeah, yeah. not, uh, not exactly. And now it's, I'm not an insurrectionist. Joe Biden is an insurrectionist. And I laugh at it because it's absurd. But I do wonder whether in some way, rhetorically, it renders insurrectionism somewhat meaningless to throw it around in the way that Trump is.
6: Yeah. And that's what he always does. And by the way, this is like a classic authoritarian tactic, right? I mean, Alexei Navalny, who's disappeared in the Russian prison system, once told me about Vladimir Putin, he doesn't have to convince you that he's not corrupt. He just has to convince you that everybody's corrupt. Nobody's good. Everybody's on the take, right? And that's what Trump does. And I think what we're going to be experiencing, unfortunately, for the next 11 months of our lives is Donald Trump doing... Doing anything he can to make it a referendum on Joe Biden and his story about Joe Biden and Joe Biden increasingly probably just trying to make it a referendum on Donald Trump. Yeah. Uh, and the American people will have the final verdict here.
2: I do. Do we have time to play this um, new sound from Donald Trump talking about uh, the blood of our nation? Can we please play that?
6: Illegal immigration is poisoning the blood of our nation. They're coming from prisons, from mental institutions, from all over the world. Without borders and fair elections, you don't have a country. Make America great again. We must win in 2024 or we will not have a nation.
2: He has been told in no uncertain terms that this is the language of Hitler. This is the language of fascism. That is from an hour ago. This is not someone who's concerned about that and is instead embracing it. And I don't have the polling in front of me, but I think it's 40 percent of Republican caucus goers in Iowa says the blood of poisoning, the blood of our nation rhetoric makes them more likely to vote for Donald Trump.
6: All the quiet part is being said out loud in this cycle, more than in the past with Trump. Uh, Vermin, blood of uh, the blood of the nation is being poisoned. This is the core of every fascist argument, that there is some other out there that is trying to pollute the purity of the nation. And And he is saying things that are so extreme. But because we're accustomed to him mouthing off or accustomed to him violating norms, we have to take a step back here and evaluate that this is nothing like anything we've ever seen before. This is someone running for president of the United States as a fascist. And the question yeah. is, like, are, are enough people going to say, you know what, like that that's not a risk that we can take.
2: I mean, I'm I would just say. Independent of whether or not he wins, the very fact that he has a basic yeah. support that is increasing at precisely the same time that he is saying this about the people who have made America America. Is terrifying. It's a nation of
6: immigrants. Everybody came here from someplace else except for the indigenous people. And I'm sure that that's not who he thinks uh, are the people. That's not the blood he's talking about.
2: Okay, Ben Rhodes, because you're here in New York, we're so thrilled (laughs) and excited. We're going to keep you. Please come back. Please do not leave the building. Ben Rhodes, stick around. We have a lot more to talk about tonight, including the real focus, the real focus of Republican integrity units that cropped up in the wake of the 2020 election. But first, The depth of Rudy Giuliani's financial troubles laid bare in his Chapter 11 bankruptcy filing today. We'll have more on that next.
5: Just go to Netsuite.com slash podcast 25 for more information. That's Netsuite.com slash podcast 25.
2: Just a day after a federal judge ordered Rudy Giuliani to immediately pay the $146 million he owes in damages for defaming former Georgia election workers Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss. Rudy Giuliani has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. In paperwork filed today, Giuliani estimated his assets to be worth somewhere between $1 and $10 million, a sum that is much, much lower than the sum he owes to Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. And it's not even in the ballpark of what he owes to his lawyers and his ex-wife and the IRS. So what happens now? Joining me now to discuss is MSNBC's (laughs) not-so-secret legal weapon, the great Lisa Rubin. Um, Lisa... First of all, what is the upside for people who are not familiar with Chapter 11 filings? Like, what does this get Rudy Giuliani?
7: So it gets Rudy Giuliani two things. The first is it allows him sort of to reorganize his financial world. And some of the things that he has, some of the debts that he owes, will hopefully, from his perspective, be wiped clean or at least reduced to cents on the dollar. Hmm. It gives him somewhat of a fresh start and allows him to get rid of certain debts and also reduce them. But the more important thing for Rudy Giuliani at this moment is it freezes every lawsuit that he is facing other than the Fulton County indictment against him. It can't freeze criminal lawsuits. And there are certain types of assets that you could recover that won't be freezed by bankruptcy, like child support. But Rudy
2: doesn't owe anybody any spousal or child support right now. We know that from his filing today. He owes a lot of people a lot of money, though, as we were talking about. It is expensive to be kind of an awful human being. It's (laughs) totally expensive. it seems to be the case here.
7: You and I were talking about during the break that if you read his filing today where he lists his 20 largest creditors, putting aside the IRS and New York state tax authorities, it is a laundry list of people who have been wronged by Rudy Giuliani and to whom he may owe also tens or hundreds of millions of dollars because those cases haven't been disposed of yet. And they include people like Hunter Biden, who has also sued him for defamation. They include Noel Dumphy, who was an employee of his, who says that Rudy Giuliani, assaulted and harassed her sexually and also stole her wages by never paying her. And of course, it includes Dominion and Smartmatic, two makers of voting machines that were defamed by Rudy Giuliani and all of his frequent media appearances where he said they were involved in the theft of legitimate votes.
2: Um, What is it? What are the implications for Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss? Their lawyer says that this play will not succeed. They're Suing Giuliani again for the defamation that happened on the steps of the courthouse after he was found guilty of defamation. Uh, what are the implications for them actually seeing their settlement or their their damages money?
7: It, it definitely kicks that can down the road because of that stay that we were talking about. But When you commit an intentional tort against something, something like defamation or intentional infliction of emotional distress, the bankruptcy law says that you can't discharge or eliminate those debts in bankruptcy. So just like Alex Jones, who wasn't able to get rid of his liability to the families of those killed at Sandy Hook, so too will Rudy Giuliani be able to press pause on the collection of his debt to Ruby and Shea, but he won't ever be able to eradicate
2: it he is ha- going to have to pay them some amount of money at some point in the not so distant future.
7: That's correct. And if he's not telling the truth about what his assets really are, if he does have assets in excess of $10 million, the bankruptcy court is entitled to know that. So if at any point in this process he is not fully transparent about all of his assets, that will be a crime in and of itself, lying to the bankruptcy court about your financial Added to status. to the list, Lisa. Well, I'm not saying that he is lying. I'm telling you what we- No, I'm just
2: saying yep. it could be yet another, you know, wrong committed by Rudy Giuliani on a long, long list that's of right.
7: wrongs. And during the Ruby and Shea litigation, he was not transparent about his finances. In fact, he refused to provide discovery on that. That's how they ended up getting a default judgment that he was liable for all of these things that they alleged he did. And that's why they had a damages- only case. Now they're going to find out the things that they didn't know before, which is, is Rudy stashing assets somewhere or did he transfer them to other people to play a shell game with them? That they should find out through this bankruptcy process. What
2: is striking to me here is, you know, we talk a lot about the question of accountability and what seems and we've talked about this offline. The hitting Trump and his allies, right wing demagogues like Alex Jones in the pocketbook is an effective tool for getting some version of accountability because it really seems like it deeply concerns these people.
7: It absolutely concerns these people. And again, today, not in the major filing, but Rudy also submitted an affidavit. And one of the things you have to tell the court is why are you filing for bankruptcy now? He is as clear as day. This filing is precipitated by the $148 million verdict that was awarded last week. What, But for that case, Rudy Giuliani, would not be filing for bankruptcy today. So yes, it will stall the recovery that Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss get, but justice will still be theirs. And in the meantime, his humiliation is there for all the public to see as America's mayor becomes America's most recent debtor.
2: Wow. I mean, the fall from grace has been spectacular and it is apparently not over yet. Lisa Rubin, thank you for staying late tonight. Thanks for having me. Great to see you. When we come back, we finally know... Finally, at long last, we finally know who all those election fraud task forces have been focused on. The answer is next.
6: Today I will detail some of the shocking irregularities, abuses and fraud that have been revealed in recent weeks. And we have so much evidence.
2: After the 2020 election, after Donald Trump's claims of so-called rampant election fraud, after those claims took hold in the Republican Party, Republicans in six states decided to create or amp up existing efforts to prosecute, prosecute voter fraud. The attorneys general of Virginia and Arkansas established election integrity units in their offices. Ohio's secretary of state created a public integrity division with oversight over investigation of election law violations. In Georgia, Republican Governor Brian Kemp signed a bill last year that gave the state's Bureau of Investigations jurisdiction over voter fraud. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis created his own election police force, initially budgeted at $1.2 million, which this year was boosted to $1.4 million. Arizona Republicans already had an election integrity unit. They launched it after Democrats had a strong showing in the 2018 midterms. Texas has already been in the business of investigating election fraud. Attorney General Ken Paxton has reportedly spent nearly $7 million on it over the last three years to handle a total of 33 cases. So what did, what did these guys get after all that fanfare, after all that money? Bupkis. According to an analysis by The Washington Post, the election integrity units established or expanded in six states after Trump's losses obtained only 47 convictions during a period in which tens of millions of votes were cast. The vast majority of the convictions represent small bore cheating or, as some defendants argue, mistakes by individual voters, such as casting two ballots, falsifying a registration or voting even if barred by a conviction. All of the convictions occurred in Florida, Texas, and Ohio, while units in Virginia, Georgia, and Arkansas failed to obtain a single guilty verdict despite allocating dozens of staffers and millions of dollars to ferret out voter fraud. Not a single conviction. Instead, these task forces mostly just made people's lives miserable and somewhat scary. This is what it looked like in Florida last summer.
1: So man, we have a warrant for your arrest. For oh, what? For voter fraud. I'm like voter fraud. I voted, but I ain't fought, commit no fraud.
5: Well, yeah, so th- that's run. the thing. I, I don't know exactly what happened with it, but you you do have a warrant. That's what it's for. Okay. Oh my God. Voter fraud. What is voter fraud? Voting
3: when you're not supposed to, sir. Why would y'all let me vote if I wasn't uh, I wasn't able to vote? I'm not sure, buddy. I don't know.
5: And then why now? This happened years ago. Why
2: now? Why me? Why him? What many of the 52 people arrested in the, la- in the last year by Governor DeSantis's election police seemed to have in common was their party affiliation or the color of their skin. It turns out it didn't just seem like that. It was like that. The Washington Post's analysis showed that the election integrity units in those six states overwhelmingly targeted minorities and Democrats for prosecution. The analysis found that 76 percent of defendants whose race or ethnicity could be identified that 76 percent were black or Hispanic, while white people constituted 24 percent of the prosecutions. Registered Democrats made up 58 percent of those charged, whose party could be identified, while registered Republicans were 23 percent. While the alleged point of these so-called election integrity projects is to make elections fair, the real point of them is not hard to figure out. The executive director of the watchdog group American Oversight put it this way. At best, these election integrity units are for show, designed to placate far-right election denialists in the conservative base, At worst, they are used to justify new voting restrictions and to intimidate people, especially racial minorities, from exercising their right to vote. And yet the desire remains to stay in the good graces of those election denialists, especially one in particular.
6: The radical left Democrats rigged the presidential election of 2020, and we're not going to allow them to rig the presidential election of 2024. We're not going to
2: allow it. The GOP remains willing to appease him, apparently at any cost. Coming up, the death toll in Gaza reaches 20,000 as a U.N. official warns the entire population is on the verge of starvation we will discuss the spiraling humanitarian situation in Gaza. That's next. According to the Palestinian Health Ministry, an estimated 20,000 people have now been killed inside Gaza since the start of the war. The entire population of Gaza, over 2 million people, is on the brink of starvation. An official for the UN's World Food Program said, it doesn't get any worse. I have never seen something at the scale that is happening in Gaza and at this speed. In Northern Gaza, there are no more hospitals left. Patients now shelter in churches, lying on pews, and the WHO says these are now hospice centers where people wait to die. The WHO aid worker seen in this video describes unfathomable conditions of patients receiving surgery and then getting infections because there are no more antibiotics. On the outside of this catastrophic suffering, talks to release Israeli hostages held by Hamas inside Gaza appear to be stalled. Hamas said it would not discuss new releases unless Israel agrees to a ceasefire. The war, it seems, is nowhere near over, even though President Biden has called on Israel to finish this war by the end of this year. A new year begins in 10 days. Joining me once again is Ben Rhodes, former Deputy National Security Advisor under President Obama. Um, ben, uh, the suffering, the accounts of what is happening in Gaza are so unbelievably wrenching, and I think it's on some level uh, a sign that we're still paying attention. That Democrats in the House with national security backgrounds today sent a letter to President Biden arguing that Israel's strategy is not in the best interests of either America or Israel. I wonder if you think this conflict is truly an inflection point in terms of changing American attitudes towards Israel.
6: I don't know how you can look at this um, and think that anything about it is okay. Uh, I think it has to change attitudes towards this Israeli government that is carrying out this operation. People need to step back and realize we've not seen anything like this in the 21st century. More women and children have been killed in Gaza in two months than have been killed in Putin's war in Ukraine in two years. Uh, we're talking 20,000. How many people are under the rubble that we don't know about? Yeah. Um, and when you hear the warnings, too, because of the cutoff of food and fuel and water, people are going to start to die of starvation, of water of waterborne illnesses. This could exponentially get worse. And so I'm glad that Democrats are raising questions about whether to provide assistance, how to condition assistance. But we're behind on this thing. Uh, You know, we're, we're still talking about we're still vetoing ceasefire resolutions at the U.N., trying to get a short term pause, a short term pause. And then what? Resume this again? This has to stop. And, and, I, you know, the hostages are not going to be saved by this military operation. Yes. Uh, how is that not clear when the hostages themselves are being killed in this military operation? So I, I just think it's good that people are raising questions, but I think we don't understand how much this is profoundly changing global attitudes, not just towards Israel, but to the United States as well.
2: Yeah, well, and that, of course, is true, too, given our our sort of walking, not in lockstep, but in parallel with Israel. I wonder what you make of I mean, what do you think the calculation is inside the way? This is, as you say, this has not happened in the 21st century. How and why has the Biden administration not been more vociferous? Like, at what point is, is it 25,000 people dead? I mean, the, the scale of death and suffering is extraordinary.
6: Well, and, and I think to step back, we all, Had a deep affinity for Israel after October 7th. Of course. Had an instinct that you want to support Israel. They have a right to defend themselves. It's also the case that you have to evaluate who is making the decisions in Israel. And this is a far right government led by Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu, who time and again has shown that he will ignore what U.S. presidents tell him. And I think the Biden administration, they said that they thought if they embraced Netanyahu, that they would have influence on him. And it's clear that that has not been the case. He's just continued to do this um, over their objections. I mean, over their stated objections. Uh, and at a certain point, you have to say, we can't we can't support this. And, and to be clear, th- this is not helping Israel. It's not securing Israel. Yes. The, Hamas is still there. Its political leadership is not even in Gaza. Uh, there's enormous amounts of sympathy, obviously, for the Palestinian cause, and enormous amount of isolation that Israel's going to be dealing with for a long time. I think if you're a friend of Israel, if you have a friend, Alex, and you see your friend doing something that is not good for them, yeah. is the way to be a good friend to say, say OK, nothing. we'll just keep doing it and that's how we'll show you your friend? No, a friend says this isn't working.
2: Um, to your point about Hamas, so popular, Hamas popularity has more than tripled among Palestinians in the West Bank. If this, this is to end Hamas, it is not doing. If this mission is to end Hamas it is not doing that. It is not accomplishing that. It also is not getting the hostages back. And I do wonder whether you think the absolute sort of debacle of three hostages being held by IDF forces in recent weeks changes any, I mean, there's domestic support for some of this, but not, it's not a blank check. The fact that, and I'm talking in Israel, the fact that they cannot seem to bring or will not bring these hostages home. I wonder if that is sort of the thing that changes that like that. Does that have any effect on Netanyahu's calculus?
6: That is clearly like an enormously emotional, important issue, as it should be. Um, And it is in this. I walked down the street today. There are hostage posters everywhere. I think people need to recognize, though, that if that is your objective, when were hostages released? It was when the military operation paused. Uh, and the hostages are clearly in danger, just as every human being is in Gaza, as long as this military operation goes on. Um, and, and so I, I just think that there are other ways of doing this. There are other ways of securing Israel. There are other ways of dealing with Hamas, there are other ways of bringing the hostages home. What we're seeing now is not the best way to do that.
2: Ben Rhodes, thank you for spending some extra time with me tonight. I appreciated that as our show for tonight. The Angie's
0: List You Know and Trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right.